Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. We talked uh, about the Eucharistic International Eucharistic Congress in Budapest. Uh, we had a few segments on it. Uh, there uh, was Dr. Mary Healy. She was there speaking on living a Eucharistic life. Uh, she's with us today. Uh, uh, you probably know already quite a bit about her. She's professor of Sacred Scripture, Sacred Heart Major Seminary, the general editor of the Catholic Commentary on Sacred Scriptures, which you really, if you're going to have any interest in uh, pursuing commentary on Scripture, you've got to have this series. And she's the author of two of its volumes, too, The Gospel of Mark and The Letter to the Hebrews. She's also the author of Men and Women Are from Eden, A Study Guide to John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Actually, that's the first book I read of yours. Huh. Yeah. It's, it's I the first it was, one I wrote. Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. I thought it was, I thought it was as concise uh, and well-stated uh, a, you know, a, a, a development of John Paul II's Theology of the Body as I had read. She serves on the Pontifical Council for Promoting Christian Unity and was appointed by Pope Francis at the Pontifical Biblical Commission so you are, you're with all the mucky mucks. <laughs> yeah. I'm too busy to put it another way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's good to see you. And I'm anxious to hear about the uh, the Eucharistic Congress. Um, you were invited there to do what? What was your primary purpose? Well, it's interesting because they first asked me to do a workshop, to do a talk. That would be one of the workshops. Yeah. And then a few months ago, they came back and said, would you also give your testimony? And uh, I said, sure. I had to prepare these beforehand and send them in because of all the translators. Oh, yeah. And um, I assumed that my, my testimony would be one of 67 simultaneous workshops sure. kind sure. of thing. Yeah. But when I got there, I found out it was actually the plenary session. <laughs> so um, the Holy Spirit actually led me to do something completely different from what I had planned. Tell, tell me. You tell well, me. Uh, you know, I wasn't expecting it to be for the plenary session, and I kind of thought, I don't really have the kind of testimony that is apt for a huge group like this. I don't really have a dramatic testimony, and I, I didn't feel completely comfortable with it. And so I prayed about it, and I, I had this idea, and I, I shared this idea with the organizers of the Congress, and uh, I said, how about if I just give a short version of my testimony and then lead some prayers, including prayers for healing, prayers for freedom from fear, wow. and for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And to their credit, they said, oh, yes, go ahead, whatever the Holy Spirit leads you to do. So I thought, okay, great, <laughs> I'm going I'm to do that. And, uh, and they also, also the lady in charge of speakers said, you can take a little extra time if you want, that's no problem. Well, it was a few minutes before I actually walked on stage that I said to the coordinator backstage, they said I could take a few extra minutes. And he said, oh, no, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, oh, no, what do I do? Because I, now I have this plan. And I just prayed, Lord, please multiply my time. And believe it or not, the cardinal speaking before me ended early. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I went on stage. I had a half an hour. I, I gave a short version of my testimony. I, I spoke about how I have experienced the grace of baptism in the Holy Spirit, yeah. which is what Jesus speaks about in Acts and what is meant to be a grace for every Christian. So I spoke about that, and I also spoke about what the Lord has shown me in the last few years about healing and how mm -hmm. I have come to see the Lord 
loves to heal and wants to heal far more often than we think, and he wants to use ordinary people to do it. So I, a- after saying that, I, um, I led people in prayers of forgiveness because that is crucial, I've seen again and again, for healing, to allow the Holy Spirit to show us any buried resentments we have, mm-hmm. any grudges we're holding, any unforgiveness, and to very deliberately choose to let go by the grace of God to forgive. So I led people in a prayer to do that. And then I led people in a prayer for freedom from fear because we've been living in a pandemic of fear. And I actually uh, led people in prayer to renounce the occult because uh, that's common, especially in Central Eastern Europe. It's common everywhere. But uh, many people don't realize how much occult involvement blocks them from the grace of God in their life. You know, many Catholics um, do occult just for fun. Yeah. Uh, on the side, or to to find out something about their life, et cetera. So, so people they do, they, they, they do forms of divination. Yeah, that Is kind that, of thing you know, for guidance. Yeah, yeah. Instead of trusting the Holy Spirit. Exactly. Okay. So so I led a prayer to renounce that, and then I led people in a prayer to be baptized in the Holy Spirit for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I had everybody stand up, and I said, "How about if you lift up your hands to heaven like little children." And I could I could see the bishops and cardinals in the front row kind of looking at each other like, do we have to do this? <laughs> but they did it. They did it. Sure. And uh, I really did feel like there there was a special uh, grace there that God was giving, and and then I led people in a prayer to utterly and completely surrender their lives to Christ, everything in their life, their their past, present, future, their hopes, dreams, and fears, everything, and and that too. Uh, you know, many people have never done that consciously. So I think that opens the door to grace. Yeah. You know, that, uh, that's marvelous. That's great. Did you get any pushback? Not at all. No. Um, that's in great. fact, uh, many people came to me afterward and said, thank you for, you know, getting us to pray spontaneously. Yeah. Yeah. Because really the rest of the Congress was typical of large ecclesial events like this. Sure. Very, very structured. Almost all the speakers were reading from their text. Yeah. Yeah. Um, some of it was very densely theological, yeah. uh, probably over people's heads in some cases. Uh, and there was mass and there was morning prayer every day, but no other spontaneous prayer. So um, so this, people thanked me for that. No, that's good. That That's uh, uh, really I, – I'm surprised. I was going to say the words that came to my mind is I'm surprised you got away with this. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Because well, uh, those are large events – Right. Uh, you know, they are run by the clock. Yes, they are. Everything's and checked out ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants any mm-hmm. room. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was very interesting to, to see both the formal elements because, of course, Cardinal Erdo of Budapest was in charge of the whole yeah. thing, and he had his priest who was the general secretary running the whole thing. But then there were lay people who were on the ground coordinators. And on the one hand, the whole thing was very formal, very planned, and incredibly well organized. Yeah. You know, there were magnificent choirs and Hungarian dancing and all kinds of cultural events yeah. uh, connected with it. So all very well planned. But on the other hand, all of the lay coordinators that I spoke with and the priest, uh, general secretary, really wanted to give free reign to the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Yeah. So there there really was an openness to the Holy Spirit. And That's I think great. it's interesting that of the four lay speakers at the Congress, there were only four lay speakers, all four are charismatic. Yeah, 
Isn't that something? Mm-hmm. That, that makes sense, though, doesn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you, you want, in some ways, lay people don't have to worry about um, there being in a formal leadership position where maybe that makes people uh, more reluctant, reluctant to throw themselves on the floor and yes, ask God to do Yes, reluctant to take risks. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, if, if you're in a particular yeah. position in the hierarchy, you can be yeah. more yeah. reluctant sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I'm more reluctant now to do things than I was 30 years ago mm. in certain mm. things mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. because of my responsibility. So I, mm. I, mm-hmm. I, I, kinda, I do uh, get that. But I'm, I'm. Um, what was the? Why did this happen in Budapest? What, what's the history here? Well, um, the Eucharistic Congress has become a, a very significant um, regular event in the modern life of the Church. Uh, the first one was in 1881 mm-hmm. in Lille, France. And they've occurred every few years since then. Um, in the recent past, it's been every four years. So um, prior to Budapest, I think uh, the Philippines was the one um, in or Dublin in 2016, mm-hmm. and uh, Cebu, Philippines before that, and then Quebec before that. Um, so this is a way for the entire global church to gather around the mystery of the Eucharist. Yeah. Yeah. In in a different place every time it's held so that different countries can experience this grace. And I do think this is a very significant grace for the church in Hungary right at this time. At this time, yeah. And um, it, there can be teaching, their formation, um, but also just a very powerful experience of the Eucharist, mm-hmm. both in the, the mass celebrated ideally with the Holy Father, and the Holy Father did celebrate the closing mass. Right. Um, with uh, many, many tens of thousands of people there, and also the Eucharistic procession through the streets. I wasn't there for those last two highlights okay. of the Congress, but um, I heard that it was magnificent, um, processing with lighted candles through the streets yeah, of Budapest with the Eucharist. Is the, How um, important is the Catholic faith to the culture of Hungary? Well, traditionally, of course, it's right at the heart of their culture. Yeah. Um, yeah. Saint Stephen of Hungary yeah. is um, one of their the great heroes of their history, and uh, th- for the last thousand years, their entire culture has been founded on the Catholic faith. Yeah. But of course, with um, you know the Soviet occupation of Eastern Europe, and right. um, and now the in some ways more insidious, more powerful influence of secularism. Okay. They've so they gotten are away from that. it. They are battling it. But yeah. I really I really believe they are in a very strategic position right now. There is a way that they are uh, a holdout against the culture of death. Mm-hmm. They have a prime minister and a president who are deeply Christian. One is a Catholic, one is a Protestant. Yeah. And and they they are holding ground where others have caved. Do do, do they share? Uh, I mean, Poland is often pointed to as an, a place where the faith is still very strong. Mm-hmm. Um, is is Poland in the same kind of position? Yes, I think they're both in very similar yeah. positions. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the highlights for me of the Congress was that, besides all of the formal events in the 
Hung Expo, which is the exposition center where this whole thing was held, um, and then the masses in the square, uh, the hero square in the city. Also, they had two stations in different locations of the city for street evangelization going on through the whole week. And this is the right thing to do, right? Because it's not all about just get, getting together with ourselves yeah, as, as the church, yeah. but going out to where people are. Mm. So one of these was at a bus station and one was at a tram station. And, mm. you know, lots of people walking back and forth. Yeah. And they had organized. Hold it there, okay? Sure. Gotta take a break. I want to come back and pick that up because mm-hmm. I did not know uh, about the street evangelization. That's great. Mm. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Mary Healy, Professor of Sacred Scripture at Sacred Heart Major Seminary, talking about the Eucharistic Congress in Budapest, where she uh, conducted a workshop and also a plenary talk, which was uh, pretty remarkable. You were talking before the break about the t- two stations for street evangelization. That strikes me as very unusual um, for this yes. kind of event. Uh, so, y- Yes. Well, I, I don't know enough to know whether this occurred at earlier Eucharistic Congresses, yeah, but... Yeah. I I do think that it is exactly the kind of thing that we ought to be doing any time we hold a major ecclesial event. There ought to be some aspect of direct evangelization of the unchurched, of the unbelievers. And it was such a blessing to be able to participate in both of these um, street preaching stations. Um, One of them was run by a, a friend of mine, Deacon Zoli Kunsabo, and the other one was run by a community there. And uh, it was very demanding for them because I think it was every day from 2 p.m. to 9 p.m. They had preachers interspersed with praise and worship bands, uh, some preaching for children, uh, most of it for adults, all very well planned yeah. and all designed to reach the person just walking by. Just walking on by. The, on the way to the train yeah. or the bus. Yeah. And uh, as I... I was in one of them. I, I had, I think, a half an hour to preach. Um, I felt like the Lord to- gave me this to say, Hungary, you are in a strategic position right now in Central Europe, and you are called to be a leader at this moment in history right now, and God is saying to you, Hungary, return to your true king, whose name is Jesus Christ. And I shouted that out at the top of my lungs uh, like three times. Uh, you know, I could see people, you know, some nearby, some hanging back yeah. in the distance, kind of, you know, curious, wondering, uh, you know, what, what is all this? Uh, but then I invited people, as many of the other speakers also did, to um, give their lives to Christ. You know, it's kind of you know, an altar call yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, a people prayer respond? to surrender themselves to Christ. And yes, many people responded. Yeah. Really, surprisingly many people responded. It, it, is, it is amazing. I've, I've done a lot of uh, knocking on doors and street work like this. And people think that uh, – a lot of people think that it, it just generates hostility. That's not been my experience. It's a yeah. surprising number. Of course, mm-hmm. you get people mm-hmm. who just give you the cold shoulder. Mm-hmm. But – but a surprising number of people mm-hmm. uh, have spiritual, unmet spiritual needs, and yes. they 
they don't have a regular place where they discuss this thing. So it's kind of an open door for them to talk mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Uh, my friend Tom Hornacek, uh, when he had, goes in restaurants and prays, uh, you know, before meal, he says to the the wait staff there, uh, "Hey, listen, I'm going to be praying here for my meal. Anything I can pray for you?" That's great. You know, yeah. And you know, some people just shrug it off, but other people are really moved by it. And yeah. I, I think that kind of nat, there's something natural about that, which is mm-hmm. is inviting mm-hmm. to people mm-hmm. and. Um, Especially if it's done well. You're not there to condemn anybody. No, You're not you know, trying to say anything offensive. Right. Um, and I found that, that these two stations in Budapest, um, some people were indifferent for sure. Sure. Just walked by. But nobody was hostile. And many people stopped yeah. and started listening. Yeah. And, and they were interested. And there was a hunger. Yeah. And in, in one of them, uh, there were people on the team prepared to actually one-on-one pray with people, which is beautiful. Yeah. And there were also prayers for healing. Um, many people received physical healings. Yeah. So uh, did you get an impression of how the leadership of the uh, Eucharistic uh, Congress, how, how they evaluated the, the overall experience? I think they were very pleased with it. Okay. Uh, probably the numbers were not what they would have liked. What um, were the numbers? I I don't know exactly. I would okay. guess there were 5,000 for the, you know, the whole thing uh, all day for – almost a week in in this hall. Um, and this was supposed to be held in 2020. So the whole thing was postponed for a year. So Were people still to, worried about COVID over there? Much less than I would have expected. Okay. Yeah, not not many people were wearing masks or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't know the numbers for the closing mass with the Pope, but, you know, for sure, uh, much higher, much yeah. higher numbers yeah. Yeah. for that. And I think that overall they were very pleased with how it turned out, and rightly so. Yeah. I mean, this is this is an enormous effort that a local church throws itself into for many years. Yeah, you know, yeah, all their resources, all hands on deck, preparing for this. And I I hope they're all getting a well needed rest right now. <laughs> uh, do you anticipate that we'll have a Eucharistic Congress in the United States in the next three four years? No, I think if if it were that soon, we would already know already about know it. Already know about it. Um, there is, however, an effort going on among the U.S. bishops for what they're calling a Eucharistic revival. Yeah, yeah, we've talked about that. Which is headed up by Bishop Andrew Cousins, yep. um, who is the uh, head of the Committee for Evangelization and Catechesis. And so he, he's been dreaming up this three-year plan mm-hmm. um, on the local level, the diocesan level, and the national level for uh, rekindling of Eucharistic amazement, Eucharistic faith— yeah. among Catholics in the U.S. Yeah. And I think it was partly precipitated by that Pew survey that came out, I think, a year and a half ago, maybe it was two and a half years ago, um, showing that uh, only one-third of um, Catholics, of course, both practicing and non-practicing, mm-hmm. believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. Right, right. And even among practicing Catholics, yeah. it's not as high as it ought to be. It's like only two-thirds. Yeah. So yeah. Um, a shocking failure of catechesis yeah, it is. And it's there's also something it seems it just seems strange to me. I've never understood why one would continue to go to mass mm-hmm. if you didn't have a high view mm-hmm. of the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I'm saying? I mean that yeah. that's that's what uh that's where the mystery is. That that's where the enchantment is. That's where the <laughs> you know the, right, the invitation right. is. Um otherwise, I mean, what is it? 
Right. Well, it's hard to say. I, I think many people still go out of cultural inertia. Yeah. But sadly, some of them have been pruned by the COVID experience. A- absolutely, yeah. I've heard and that so if, numbers you know, might go down 12%. I've heard yeah, people say wow. that they think it may go down that low. Yeah. So, yeah, I, ho- I hope, obviously, I hope not. But um, there's a, there's no better time right than right now for the bishops to begin to handle this idea of Eucharistic revival. Right. Right? I mean, it's, it's, yes. it's got to be out But there. It, I think in a way you could say even more fundamental is that people encounter Jesus personally and know him and and become his disciples and actually define their entire lives on Jesus yeah. well. uh, in terms of following him as his disciple, a love relationship with him, a friendship with him. Yeah. Because without that, even the best catechesis on the Eucharist will only go so far. That's right. I, I, I've been actually studying discipleship uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. And one thing is abundantly clear is that being a disciple of Jesus is not something you do on the side. Right. <laughs> it's all-consuming. It's all-consuming. Your entire mm-hmm. life is – this. it's a change of identity. Absolutely, and, and that's why he could, you know, call this, these two sets of brothers uh, to leave what they had because mm-hmm. it, it was all encompassing. Uh, do you, when you were there, uh, did you talk about this uh, that we are living tabernacles? I heard yes, that I did. Phrase, that, and I loved. Mm-hmm. Tell me about it. Um, yes, I spoke about that in my my workshop, which was on. Uh, well, I called it "Love Says." Go, which is a title of a book by a Protestant friend of mine, but I think it's a wonderful, uh, very brief summary of what the Mass is meant to lead us to. You know, the very word Mass is from ite misa est. She is sent. Yeah. That's the church. We are sent. So the, the, the inner purpose of the Eucharist is always mission, not in a superficial sense, but in the sense that Christ himself is mission. He is the one sent by the Father to reveal and enact in the world the infinite self-emptying love of God. And that's what we receive and participate in the Eucharist. And that is what is meant to then form our very lives. Our our lives are meant to take the shape of the self-emptying love of Christ. And therefore, Every time we leave church at Mass, we are entering mission territory. And as you may know, there are some churches that have signs to that effect at the exits to their parking lot. You are now entering mission territory. (laughs) So now some Protestants have those signs as well. But as Catholics, we realize we we don't just – um, receive the Eucharist and then we're done. We you know get our quota of grace and go home for the right. week. We become living tabernacles. Yeah. We become carriers of the presence of Jesus so that we can bring him into the world, so that in whatever daily situations the Lord has placed us in, our, our family, our work, our school situation, we can live out and exemplify what we've received yeah. in the Eucharist, which is infinite self-outpoured love. Yeah. Yeah. And so our, our lives are, are meant to reflect the Eucharist. But what, what I saw during the COVID crisis, during those months when 
the churches were closed and we didn't have access to the sacraments is that some Catholics literally felt that we were nothing, that we, we were completely wrecked. And that's yeah. not the case. Yes, it's, you know, it's true that it's a tremendous suffering. That yeah, we, there's we a deprivation there for certain. There is a yeah. deprivation that we're not able to participate in the Eucharist and receive Christ in the Eucharist. But nevertheless, we remain living tabernacles. And, and that's why the church in, in places like Japan and uh, Korea and other places had for decades no priests and no sacraments and yet remained yeah. as a living, vibrant church. Yeah. Now, that's yeah. not a normal situation, of no. course. <laughs> we, no. we don't ever want that. But, um, but Catholics need to know that the Lord whom we receive in the Eucharist lives in us. Yeah. So we, our, our whole lives are meant to, are, are sacred. You know, we, we're meant to carry his presence and be his presence wherever we go. Do you think the reason that is hard uh, for people, that that is hard for people to grasp is because we are very much aware of how far short we fall. Uh, uh -huh. and, and so it becomes like, uh, 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 like, okay, yeah, I believe that. I mean, I believe, theologically, I believe that doctrinally, I believe it, but, you know, I still lose my temper. I, yeah, I, you yeah. know. Are you kidding? I mean, the moment I go out to the parking lot, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I get and angry so, at somebody. Yeah, and I, and I think it, we, this, this kind of, these two things come together, mm -hmm. uh, you know, concupiscence, and then this, uh, this idea that we have received the self-emptying love of Christ, and we are now uh, on mission Mm -hmm. to bring that to the world around mm -hmm. us, mm -hmm. really. I, and I think everybody has to come to the place where they, they figure out how these two things work. Yeah. It's like so many truths of the faith, it's almost too great to bear. Yeah. It's, it's yes. almost too blinding a light. It's right. almost too magnificent and wondrous a truth for us to bear. And we, we look at our ordinary little lives and we think, it can't be the case. Yeah. You know, maybe the Lord didn't really mean it that way. Maybe the church doesn't really mean that. And we, we dumb down or we dilute the amazing truths of the gospel. Yeah. And, you know, we, we think our, our lives don't measure up at all, and they don't. Yeah. But that's where grace is available and always accessible to us. Even though our lives don't measure up in so many ways, we can continually return to the Lord, continually repent, be more deeply converted, and live it out. He began a good work in us, and He'll finish it. Yeah, He'll yeah. bring it to completion. Mary, thank you so much. Uh, You're welcome. Thanks for having me.